0: You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T REMNANT to get 10% off your semester. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Wonderful World of Remnant Radio. Today, we've got Ken Fish. We're talking about Freemasons. It's going to be an exciting program. You guys stay tuned. You are watching The Remnant Radio, a crowd-funded show where we interview pastors, teachers, historians, and theologians from different churches and denominations. My name is Joshua Lewis, and this is my co-host, Michael Roundtree. Together, we want to help you break outside of your theological echo chambers. If you're interested in learning about history, theology, or the gifts of the Spirit, this is the show for you. Hey everybody, I want to I wanna let you know about the program that we've got going on today, talking about the Masons. I want to introduce Ken in just one moment. Before I do, I want to remind you we're entirely crowdfunded, so uh, if you've been blessed by the ministry, maybe this episode or other episodes you've watched and you're like, hey, it's about time I should support the channel, there are links in the description. You can do that. There's a PayPal link or a Patreon link. You can give a one-time gift on PayPal. Or you can give as low as five bucks a month and you get access to extra content there on Patreon. So uh, it helps support the channel. If you give monthly, it helps us uh, produce our content. Our hope is to kind of uh, resource some other people to help us, you know, take some media and put it on different platforms and all that good stuff. So that's where your money would be going. So I encourage you to do that so that we can... Have more of a leverage here on the social webs and whatnot, the, fa- the book face and the gram and all that good stuff. But uh, uh, additionally, let me introduce you to the guys today. This is Ken Fish there in the middle. That's Michael Roundtree all the way on the end. Uh, Michael, how are you doing, man? You want to you want to intro- introduce your buddy Ken before we get going?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, yeah, love Ken Fish and Ken. It's so exciting to have you back on the show. Ken's uh, been a somewhat regular fixture here on render Radio. I've known Ken for. Uh, I don't know, a number of years, years and years, yeah. however long that is. Uh, and uh, Ken, I think maybe the first time we met was at a Convergence conference back in 2017. Is that right? That sounds about right. Yes. They're about. Jack Deere introduced us anyway. So Ken, uh, Ken and I are friends. and uh, And Ken, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about your ministry, your ministry school, and just kind of what you do.
2: Well, I founded Orbis Ministries uh, twelve years ago, and we are we are a little bit of an unusual duck, harder to define maybe than some. We do evangelism, but we're not purely evangelistic. We do healing, but we're not purely a healing ministry. We do deliverance, rah, uh, but we are not purely a deliverance ministry. Um, and we fashion often, free people. Josh, huh? can we turn that into yeah, a GIF later?
0: It. <laughs> it, it, it's already done. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Don't do it. God. Don't do it. Uh, we, also, uh, we also teach and minister prophetically, but we're not purely a prophetic ministry. And we do something that's very unusual these days. We actually open the Bible and teach from it, uh, but we're not purely what? a teaching ministry. But we do all these things, all of which are part of the normal Christian life and life in the church. And our real goal is to uh, equip the body of Christ for doing the works of service that Jesus called us to do. And, uh, and we believe that's going to come through a staged process of renewal, revival, and reformation. And so we kind of work in all three stages of church renewal, from renewal up through reformation. And uh, I don't know, it keeps us busy. That's, what, that's who I am, and that's what we do.
0: Yeah, Ken, tell us, you, you said you said the name of your ministry is Orbis. Not all of us went to Princeton like you did, uh, and we don't know languages. So can you maybe tell us what the name of that ministry means? Because I, yeah. I don't or- Orbis know. Orbis
2: is a Latin word, and uh, and I actually, it, it came to me in a dream. I mean, I do read Latin, but, uh, but the word came to me in a dream when I was thinking about renaming our ministry. We started it as Kingdom Fire Ministries, which worked for a while, but ultimately I was getting a lot of feedback from people that um, the word kingdom is kind of a yellow letter word for many evangelicals, and no pun intended, but fire is a red letter word. And so uh, the name was off-putting and was really creating kind of a branding problem. Uh, So we we started to think about changing the name, and I prayed about it for a while. One night I had a dream, Orbis Ministries. I knew what the word Orbis meant when I woke up, uh but i contacted my webmaster immediately and she said all the domain names are available everything i said grab them all .com .org .gov .mil .edu i want them all because i don't want anyone camping out on an adjacent site and setting up i don't know something that sells plastic elephants or something
0: Do you hear um, that freemasons no matter what happens today you can't create a fake account and blackmail <laughs> ken um Let's talk about let's talk about Freemasons. Tell us a little bit about your interest, your vested interest in Freemasonry. How you started learning about that whole um, cult group? Who are they? Where they come from? All that good stuff.
1: And are well, they even you, a cult I, group? Wait a minute. Say that, Michael. I said, and are they even a cult group? Because we have some people who are in the chat right now. Well, I don't know if they're in the chat, but they're at least watching. They'll watch this yeah. video. Maybe they're part of the Masons, and they don't even believe this is part of the occult or any uh, right. any sort of uh, aberrant theology or philosophy or anything, nothing wrong with it. So anyway, yeah. Tell us about the Masons.
2: There's been a lot of debate and controversy about the Freemasons and the Christian church. I mean, literally for centuries, not, not just of late. And, uh, depending on what time in history you're talking about, uh, there have been, um, you know, church edicts issued saying you cannot be a Christian Christian and a Freemason. And for some people, this is going to be off-putting. For others, it will be confirming. But among others, the Roman Catholic Church uh, still teaches in its formal catechism that you cannot be a a Freemason and a Roman Catholic. But I know people who have had similar instruction, whether they were Lutheran, uh, they might have been Methodist or Anglican, uh, various groups like this. For my part, I didn't know that much about the Freemasons. And when I Really started to travel heavily and engage in a lot of uh, deliverance ministry. <clears throat> I started running into it, and even then, I, it was hard to find good information on it. And so, um, eventually, through a series of I would just say divine circumstances, divine appointments, um, the Lord led me to somebody who helped me understand more about the Freemasons. And then I did some reading on them. And then, since then, I've had quite a few encounters, uh, prayer encounters, where people who have it in their family line or maybe they themselves had been Freemasons, um, you know, they got freed of various things uh, that were assailing them. Just an example, one of the common things with people who come out of Masonic lines, uh, many times they have allergies and many times they have heart conditions. Now, there are other things that can be involved as well and uh and there're certainly other conditions that can arise from freemasonry but um those are two that are that are common enough uh that it will at least help those who are listening to think hmm i wonder if this might be a thing in my life in my own personal life as i got more familiar with freemasonry i i started thinking you know there are some patterns in my own family and in my own life i i wonder if there's freemasonry in my life And I went around and I talked to those of my relatives who were still alive and everybody said, no, no, nothing like that. Nobody who ever did anything like that. No, 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 no. And one day, uh, maybe it was probably five or six years ago, I went over to my aunt's house for lunch and she handed me a book that had been written by a distant cousin of mine. And I've never met this cousin, but he was at one time an investigative journalist for the Los Angeles Times. And uh, she handed me a copy of a book that he had published on our family. And as you do when people hand you, you know, a, a new book, I mean, we were, we were there for lunch. So I clearly wasn't going to curl up in a chair and just start reading the book. But you kind of, you know, flip pages and you, you know, you look at the table of contents to see what's in it. And I, I was doing that. And uh, as I did, I flipped the page and my eye fell bang right here on a page fairly early in the book. I don't remember the page number now, but anyway, there it was. And uh, and it said that my great-great-grandfather had given a silver trowel to the mayor of New York and the silver trowel was used to build City Hall in New York City, that New York. and um, And that the, the silver trowel was now on exhibit in the New York Historical Society. And as soon as I saw that, I was like, there it is, that's what I've been looking for. I knew it had to be there because those who who hand out silver trowels within the Freemasons this is above the 33rd degree this is this is among the highest levels you can get to and the fact that my great great grandfather had done this meant that not only was he a freemason but he was you know using the influence he had as a high ranking mason to you know curry favor with the government of New York City and it worked and they used again they used this silver trowel to lay the foundation of the of City Hall in New York. Well, I thought, okay, I gotta see this. I gotta fact check this. So on a trip to New York, when I was going out there, I took a few friends and we went over to the New York Historical Society. We had to pay the admission fee and we walked around a bit. And, and there's five floors in the, in the society, so you, you may not find it immediately, but we knew what we were looking for. And sure enough, we came up to this case and here was a silver trowel and there it said My great great grandfather's name, and he had given it to the mayor of New York, and they had used it to lay the foundation of City Hall. And I went, okay, contact, you know, range to target, bang. We know what we got here. And that was kind of my own, uh, my own personal family history, but it lay hidden for literally decades. Because well, beyond that, if you don't count my life, just go back even further. People, people hadn't thought about it. They hadn't known about it. And many, many people have Freemasonry in their family history uh you know some direct lineal descendant or ancestor as it, in this mm-hmm. case so in my case a great great grandfather would be five generations back but um but many times these things are forgotten or they aren't really taken seriously so no one really mentions it they think the freemasons are some kind of a mm. a social club maybe like the rotary or kiwanis club or something like that and there are some social organizations that are perfectly good social organizations and the Kiwanis and Rotary you don't have anything to worry about if if you have family members that have done that but the Freemasons are actually quite different Um, they have an ancient history that depending on whose book you're reading goes back at least to the building of the great cathedrals of Europe and possibly as far back as the building of the pyramids of Egypt but they were called. Yeah. which is really a long yeah. time, right? That's like uh-huh. five thousand years.
1: Right. Well, um, you know, Ken hearing that you have a history in the Masons actually explains a whole lot about <laughs> never mind, I'm I'm not gonna finish that. So um <laughs> we, we knew where that was going. kids a friend. <laughs> so kid's a friend, guys. Ken is a friend. Just so, remember, Michael, I know where you live. <laughs> right next time you're casting spirits to you oh my god hey go (laughs) okay so when i was a maybe a couple years into like my first being a pastor i mean so i was in my early 20s somebody in my church came to me and asked for advice about the masons and he said hey i'm thinking about joining the masons what do you think and uh but this was like this was part of him setting up an appointment. And I was like, I don't know what I think. I tried to do a bunch of internet research before I, I met with them. And I was like, I can't find anything because I mean, I see a bunch of people claiming that they know, but I can't find any ground for their sources. So uh, it, it was just very hard because it's a secretive organization. On my way to to meet with him, I'm praying. While listening, I, I'm kind of like praying under my breath, and at the same time, I just kind of have a podcast going on in the background. It's of a preacher, and uh, and this preacher, in the middle of his sermon, he pauses, and it had nothing to do with what he was talking about. And he says, "Oh, by the way, I just feel like I should say this: Masons, they're a cult, and you should never join them. It'll, you know, have all kinds of demonic repercussions." And then he continued with the sermon. I was like, "What?" So, <laughs> I I had this sort of spiritual experience but in terms of research it was really hard to find stuff the reason I tell you all of that Ken is because when you you, you said earlier somebody I was talking with somebody and they gave me information I, I'm curious who this somebody is uh, and you said I also read some things I'm curious what you read uh, because I, I want to be mindful of the of the person who's watching who might maybe come from a Masonic background or have Masons in their family line. And like, I don't know about this Masons demons thing. Uh, they might look back and a thousand years ago, I've found that uh, that in the Mason's history that it, it, it seems to have maybe started as a Christian organization. Um, they seem to do good things for society. So I don't know. So, so for the skeptical person, Ken, can you help us out a little bit on citations and sources where are you getting your information from?
2: Well, one of the best sources that you could uh, look at if you want to study this is this book right here that I put up on my phone screen. It's called... 33 30-
1: Degrees of Deception
2: Yep, by Tom Mc- McKinney. Uh, McKinney. Okay. Yeah, M-C-K-E-N-N-E-Y, Tom McKinney. Um, there are some other things that have been written. And, you know, once you it's like anything, once you start getting into studying it, you find that there are other places you can draw from. But I found that book to be quite helpful. And there was a guy that I met, he was, he's a friend of mine in Australia. And he had done a lot of deliverance uh, ministry. And he had done a lot of work with people coming out of the Freemasons, because the Freemasons are very, very prominent and predominant, excuse me, predominant within australian society and so i really hadn't heard much about them at all one way or another and i will even say this in uh, john wimber's church the vineyard christian fellowship which later became known as the vineyard christian fellowship of anaheim but started out as the vineyard christian fellowship of yorba linda it moved from one city to the next so the name changed but it was a distinction without a meaning because the two cities are right adjacent to each other and it. You know, it wasn't a very distant move. Um, The very first meeting house that the Vineyard Christian Fellowship of Yorba Linda, later Anaheim, ever had was the Masonic Lodge of Yorba Linda, California on Main Street in Yorba Linda, and it's still there to this day. That's literally where the church had its first meeting hall. Now, to be clear, the church got started in somebody's living room and kind of moved around a bit. When they finally had gotten so big, they needed a place to meet they started meeting in the Masonic Lodge, which tells you right away that in the mind of the people there, they had no real awareness of or guardedness about Freemasonry. Since that time, I've seen enough, I've learned enough. Um, If I'd been there at that time, and I wasn't there to give any advice, and even if I had been, I wouldn't have been knowledgeable enough to say anything, I would have said, don't meet in this building. You'd be better off to meet in an open field if you need to, but don't go do that. Because um, the Freemasons, as I said, their history, it's not entirely clear how far back it goes, but it goes back a fair distance. And part of why they are called the Freemasons is because, at least in the Middle Ages, they were trying to kind of distinguish themselves and react against um, the Roman Catholic Church, which was certainly... Uh, you know, the dominant force in Europe at the time. And, you know, all of government, all of life was in one way or another regulated by the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church. But there were these various groups that weren't really Catholic. They didn't really subscribe to all that. And and in that sense, they were outside the mainstream of society. And the Freemasons called themselves free because they said, you know, we we don't swear allegiance to the Pope. Well, that was that was enough to get them in trouble on its own. But the, but there's something more troubling about the Freemasons, and that is that they're a secret society. Which, by the way, Michael is why you had trouble finding information. Um, they, when people join the Freemasons, they take an oath of secrecy, and so there are other secret societies as well. But the nature of secret societies is, you swear on pain of death or dismemberment and i mean these 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 vows are pretty gruesome you can again if you know where to look you can find them um but you know may my tongue be cut out may by, I, my eyes be gouged out may, by, may my heart be taken beating from my chest um if i give up the secrets of the lodge and of the orders
0: man we're talking indiana jones style i mean this is this is serious kinds of uh, yeah. cultish stuff uh, I'd be curious. I mean, you just mentioned like Roman Catholic. I remember you saying in one of your lectures that it seems as if there are Muslim groups that incorporate Freemason stuff. There are Christian groups, Jewish groups. It seems as if it's quite syncretistic. So I guess this would be my question. You you also talked about, man, it might even go back all the way to, you know, uh, uh, Egypt. Okay. Again, different datings on this. If it spans this length of time and is able to... Uh, incorporate other religious views from different religious sects, is it kind of like new age to say like, if you take six new agers from different places on the world, they're going to have six different versions of their religion, their philosophy. What makes them all Freemason, right? What, what makes this group that's such a, you know, clandestine uh, organization, how can we look at all these different groups and say that they're Freemasons? Is there any consistency to what they believe?
2: Well, one one thing that is a common governing theme of the Freemasons is no matter what branch you're talking about, you'll see the symbol G. And if you've ever seen the Masonic symbol anywhere, there's a prominent G there and it, it stands for God, at least in English. And um, you know, in in up until pretty recent times in lands that we now call post Christian but formerly called Christian lands or Christendom, if you said God, it was understood you meant Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That was just a given. That's no longer a given. And the Freemasons actually for quite a while have used the term God really to refer to some great transcendent being, but not necessarily the one that we call uh, father, whom we relate to through the person of his Son Jesus Christ in atonement—that's uh, a—it's a completely foreign concept. And so, in that sense, Josh, what you're saying is, yes, it's somewhat New Agey. But you could say the Freemasons were New Age before New Age was a thing. Um, some prominent Freemasons that would instantly be recognizable to our listeners. Um, George Washington was a Freemason, and many of the founders of the United States were Freemasons. Um, many of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and of the Constitution were Freemasons. And Washington, D.C. was laid out literally, um, you know, architecture and urban planning, laying out the grid of the city. That was done by Freemasons using Masonic uh, principles and rituals. And the. Um, I, saw, I saw
0: a national treasure with. That movie, mm-hmm.
2: it it all comes back to a
1: movie, huh, Josh?
0: Well, I mean, it's that movie with uh, what's we that? Got guy's? Indiana
1: Jones National Treasure. What's yeah. the next one gonna be? Yeah.
0: Well, okay. So Ken, people are hearing you say this though, and they're like, okay, that just sounds conspiratorial. Uh, again, is that book that you recommended gonna have the source material that kind of exposes and shows that?
2: Yeah, it, it'll have some of that in there. Um, and by the way, Canberra, Australia, has exactly the same history behind it. And it is the Washington hmm. D.C. of Australia, and I only say it that way because some of our listeners probably don't know that Canberra is the national capital. But I, I mention that in order to, uh, in order to you know let people know that this this business of laying out cities according to Masonic principles is it, it is not it's not unique to the United States. Um, in addition, like I said, a lot of the founding fathers, not all of them though, uh, John Adams, for in particular, he was not one. Uh, but many of them were, and you were asking about other religions, so there is an Islamic branch of Freemasonry, and of note, Ataturk Kamel, I said his name wrong, Ataturk Kamel, who was the founder of the modern Republic of Turkey at the conclusion of the Ottoman Empire after World War I, he was a Freemason. You can find Freemasonry and you can find Masonic lodges in all over Latin America, um, and it came to Latin America with the Spaniards, and to a lesser degree with the Portuguese, uh, when Latin America was being colonized back in the day. So there's, there's all of these things we can point to, and there's one particular branch of Freemasonry known as the Rosicrucians, which Rosicrucian is Latin for the rosy-colored cross. The Rosicrucians draw upon the mystical religions, um, some of the mystery cults, uh, Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, things like this coming out of Persia. Buddhism doesn't come out of Persia, but it, these are more Eastern style religions, um, and so that's another branch of Freemasonry. And again, all of these refer to um, this thing you know called God, but they don't necessarily they don't necessarily define who that God is. And so one of the tenets of Freemasonry is that you know we all we're all brother Masons under this one being called God. It's expected that you will that you will acknowledge God. But that's it. Now, here I've got on my screen uh, two s- examples of how the Freemason's symbol is shown. The one that's more prominent in the rectangle, right? Hang on, got to get my finger to work. Right, where'd it go? The black. Yeah, the black one. Yeah, there, the one that's rectangular. Uh, so you can see the G there between the compass and the square that are used by people who do drafting and things like that. So the Freemasons are, you know, associated with building and drawing and laying things out. I mentioned these twin cities of Washington and Canberra. And to the, to the other side of it, it's in a kind of a blue circle. That one's not coming through very clearly. Maybe if I move it back. Anyway, it also has a compass and a square and a G in the middle of it. So this is the standard um, Masonic symbol that we see if I can pull that one up. There we go. That'll give you a better picture of that blue one. So that's that's an example. And what's interesting is the Freemasons at one point were, they were kind of dying out because they, oh, they like to go down to the lodge and they, you know, they have their ceremonies and things, but it's kind of a boys club. And they started to die out. And it's interesting that now here in the early uh, 2020s and maybe the late 20-teens, uh, Freemasonry began to make a huge um, recruiting effort and now you'll see baby haulers or, you know, whatever people call them, kid mobiles, um, typically SUVs or things like that, vans, minivans, um, where you would commonly have a car like this. If you've got a lot of young children, there are a lot of these cars. If you keep your eyes open and you drive around, you'll see them sporting this symbol that I've just shown you. Uh, and what it's hmm. telling you is that the, the man of the house, and he's probably a man in his what, 20s or 30s, maybe his 40s. He's raising kids. He's a father but he's joined the Freemasons. And when I was working in uh, San Francisco, this would be about 20 years ago, I had a colleague one day came in and he told me he was going to a, a special meeting that night and he was, he was so honored and privileged to be going to this meeting. And I said, oh, what's that? And he said, well, I've been invited to join the Freemasons. And by now I had a little more savvy about what this was. And I said, uh, I, and he was a Roman Catholic too. And I said, I think you want to rethink that. And he said, oh, why is that? And I said, well, first of all, your church is going to tell you you shouldn't be a member. Um, I said, but beyond that, you're going to get yourself tangled up in some things that you don't really know what you're messing with. And in the long run, this is going to hurt you, not help you. And he said, mm-hmm. oh, I can't believe that. The guys I've met have been so nice. And this is the thing, the Freemasons really present themselves as upstanding citizens, especially in small-town America or small-town Australia or New Zealand. Um, and even if you travel through many of the, you know, the countryside of, say, France or Germany, places like this, England, Scotland, <clears throat> many times um, people like this. I'm not saying in every case it'll always be these exact individuals, but people like the chief of police. Or the, uh, you know, the chief, uh, whoever the head of surgery is at the local hospital, the, the chief residential doctor. The um, surgeon general. Yeah, the well, the surgeon general is even higher ranking. It's for typically a whole country. But, like, in, in each hospital, there'll be a chief of staff. That's the term they use. There you go. Oftentimes, that person will be a Freemason. Many times, um, the people who are the most prominent business people in the town are Freemasons. And many times, you'll find that, um, you know, the mayor, the chief of police— Uh, Other people like this in prominent roles are Freemasons, and often the local judge will be a Freemason. And again, you'd need to study this a bit to find out, but there's actually a requirement within the Masonic orders that if a Brother Mason comes into a judge's courtroom and flashes him the Masonic symbol, no matter what the law says, the judge is required to rule in favor of Brother Mason, irrespective of the merits of the case. So it's it's a secret society that exists for the furtherment and betterment of people who are typically looking for either political power or economic wealth. And oftentimes the two go together, but but those are the two main things that people are seeking and, after. Right. And they have
1: some f- funky syncretistic theology that is not Christian, it was condemned by the Catholic church uh, a long time ago. I think that was like maybe 1700s or so. Uh, yep. But Christians today are consistently speaking out against the freemasons can i, w- I want to ask you a specific question uh fraternities and sororities now I- i've heard before that there are some kind of masonic connections if so and if there's anything demonic about masons then that would indict i mean there would be millions of people in just america alone uh, or I don't know, hundreds of thousands, how many people are in fraternities or sororities, uh, or at least how many have been. I mean, this would be a huge deal. I mean, is there anything to that, Ken?
2: Uh, yes and no. So some fraternities are like theater pipelines into the grander Masonic orders. So the big ones that people tend to join are Scottish Rite and York Rite, if, they are, uh, if they're men and they'd be Order of the Eastern Star, Daughters of Job. Uh, There's a couple of others as well, but anyway, for the women. And some of the fraternities on college campuses have connections to the Freemasons. Others do not. Um, My general counsel to people is not, you know, I I don't tell people across the board, you can't join a a fraternity or a sorority. But I do tell them you should investigate what are the linkages and connections and irrespective of whether they have free masonic connections if they're if they're to making you take secret oaths i would be very wary of that because a lot of times notwithstanding that they may not be directly freemasons the taking of secret oaths this is forbidden uh not only in the catholic church but i would add even jesus said don't take oaths right he says don't swear uh, you can't change the hairs on your head. Um, let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Anything other than this comes from the evil one. And so there can be things that are not Freemason that are still resident within some sororities and fraternities, some, not all. So if you're going to do it, you really want to do your due diligence and be sure what you're, what you're signing up for and what you're agreeing to.
0: Yeah, that makes sense. You know, can you you mentioned a couple of times, and there are people uh, that are watching that aren't on board with the generational curse thing. We'll probably address more of that here in a moment. But can you just explain to us the explicit demonic oaths that are taken to become a Freemason? I, I think maybe the higher up you go, the more oaths you have to take. But you talked about in one of your lectures, like a perpetual. Um, a, a perpetual binding oath on you and former generations that follow after you. Can you just explain yeah. the the demonic nature of these oaths?
2: Yeah, when, when you join the Freemasons, although you usually aren't told all that you're signing up for at the first, um, you are pledging yourself over to an entity, a spiritual entity whose name is Jabulon. This is the ruling spirit of Freemasonry. And if you understand, I know you've had Michael Heiser on here, so you understand a bit about principalities and powers and that sort of thing. Well, Jabulon is one of those principalities. But Jabulon is actually an unholy trinity. So in the Christian trinity, we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, Jabulon is an unholy trinity that was essentially blended together, an amalgamation of three separate gods. One is um JAH, which is a shortened form of the word Jehovah, uh, and it's slightly modified as well. So the JAH of Jehovah is the JAH of Jabulon. And so in the Bible, it will only work in the King James Bible because we don't use Jehovah anymore, but in the King James translation uh, we have a J-E-H. JAH is J-A-H, but that's, that's the root of it. And the Freemasons are famous for taking things particularly out of the King James Bible, and um, incorporating them into their, into their secret oaths and words and passwords. Uh, one single example is Isaiah had a son whose name was Maher Shalal Hashbaz. And that was just what his name was. It means swift to the booty and speedy to the prey. And Isaiah was told to name his son that because before he was old enough to realize the good and the bad, um, the, the Assyrians would have come and they would have been swift to the plundered speedy to the prey. Well, the Freemasons have taken that name and turned it into a password or a code word and invested it with a kind of talismanic power. Um, So we have Jah, and then we have Bull. Now, who is Bull? Well, most people who know anything about Christianity have heard of this god named Baal. Usually, Americans just say Baal or Ball, but it's B-A-A-L. And um, so Baal is is the is the Canaanite god of fertility, and so bull in the Jabulon name, and this is no bull, uh, is it's spelled B-U-L in that part of the word, uh, but bull is a modified form of Baal. So now we have this this Jah entity who's supposedly you know the Lord God Jehovah mingled with the very god that he hates the most, Baal. And then we have An. Who is An in Jabulon? An is a shortened form of the name Onurus, who was the Egyptian god of war. And so Jabulon is an unholy trinity of some modification of the Jewish god, the Canaanite god, and the Egyptian god. This is the trinity to whom they are swearing allegiance. And as it turns out, and you only learn this much later as you go higher up in the orders, Jabulon is actually a cipher. It's a code name for Satan himself.
0: No, mm, no, you mentioned okay, Jabulon. So, that that's in their texts, right? Like that's not like yeah. in personal deliverance stories. You had people come up and be like, you know, not I am Legion, but I am Jabulon, and you like exercise said demon that identified itself. You're saying that you, this the source material from the Freemasons are saying this is the God that we worship.
2: But you're not gonna find this readily because again, these these words are held secretly as you move up through the levels. When you you first pledge, you go through three levels of initiation. This is known as the Blue Lodge Rite of the Freemasons. And once you've gone through three levels, you are now an accredited Master Mason and you've completed your formal training. But then people who get serious about it, you have levels four up to 33. And then there's a few levels above 33, Uh, places where you give out silver trowels, you become a master mason, which means you're a lodge master. Uh, You may found a lodge. You might have some other things that go with that. Um, So conventionally, it's up to the 33rd degree. But again, there are these other even higher levels that are not mentioned nearly as often. And generally people aren't, they never find out about this unless they just hear about it. And they certainly would never be invited to become those higher level masons Unless and until they had completed their thirty third degree initiation, and so names like Jabulon are reserved for the thirtieth degree and higher. Okay, so
1: Ken, if you go to a lot of uh, say deliverance teachers who talk about uh, who talk about Mason specifically, they'll have you renounce every single oath and every single degree, and and I've seen uh, I've seen deliverance ministries that have pages and pages where they'll have participants read through notebooks that are like 20 pages, 30 pages long, and they just have to reserve an afternoon to read this out loud, renouncing every single curse, renouncing every single oath by name. And I, I've noticed in your teaching, while, while you do encourage people to be as specific as possible, you you emphasize the simplicity of of the approach. You uh, you have I have written down here five steps. I don't know if you still use five steps, Ken, but I'm just going to go ahead and read these off. One, declare allegiance to, D- to Jesus, renouncing all other allegiances. Two, renounce blessing and curses of the Masonic Lodge. Three, mm-hmm. repent on behalf of ancestors for participating in Freemasonry, Name persons uh, and identify as specifically as possible. Four, renounce Jabulon and command him to release the person in Jesus' name. Five, renounce and evict spirits of death and infirmity. Uh, This sounds like it could take place in a much shorter period of time than reserving an afternoon and reading a long list of potential oaths and curses and blessings that all need to be renounced. So can you speak into your differing approach and why you don't have people read a long list of pages like many deliverance ministries do?
2: Yeah, I don't do it because um, I have found that many times when people go through those long lists, they come to the end and they can't really tell you that much has happened. Sometimes they can, but but I'd say more commonly, not so much. And so it, it, this, this really arises from the way I understand deliverance. Deliverance is power encounter. It's an encounter between the figure of God and the kingdom of Satan what so Jesus said, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then know with certainty that the kingdom of heaven has come among you. And so um, what I what I found out was that a lot of people were, were going to whole weekend retreats reading these you know, renunciation prayers. And just to be clear, I'm not saying there's anything harmful or even, even dumb or silly about doing it. I just don't think it's the thing that pushes everything off the cliff. Um, we, need, mm-hmm. we need power to drive things out, not formulas and rituals. And so um, one of the people that I ran into who had had a lot of experience with this, um, he and I started talking and he said, well, this is what I have found works the best. Go after the ruling spirit of Freemasonry, drive it out and all the rest of it will leave. And I said, oh, that's interesting. So I tried it and I've seen dramatic breakthroughs with people. Who mm. were coming out of Freemason families, or they had themselves been Freemasons, and so um, the reason we do it that way, the blessings and curses have to do with the fact that when you when you go through the Blue Lodge ritual, um, you are actually taking unto yourself blessings that will help you politically or economically. You are also taking mm. unto yourself curses should you ever break. Uh, the vows of secrecy, or walk away from the Freemasons. This is just this is part of the what you what you recite when you join the Freemasons, and they do certain things to you. They have uh, actions that they do. They'll put a hood over your head at the second degree. It's called the hood wink ritual. Um, they will expose your chest by opening your shirt, and they will take a I'm bear. <laughs> well, they'll take I'm already bear- out on that part. They'll take a bare blade of a dagger and they lay it down over your chest. And the, and the you know, what you say is, you know, may my heart be cut out as with this dagger. Should I ever break the Masonic line? But then you pledge all of your progeny in perpetuity to the service of Jabulon and the lodge. That means you, you took a blood oath. And you pledge that your children, your grandchildren, your great-grandchildren, your great-great-grandchildren, forever and ever, amen, will serve Jabulon, who we've already said is a cipher for Satan himself, and the Masonic Lodge. And so when people are coming out of Freemasonry, they have to repent of that sin that their ancestor committed. In my case, it was my great-great-grandfather. Um, But by the way, you might have other ancestors who were also in, so you might need to repent on behalf of each one of them, as far as you know about them. And so you ask the Lord to cover that and to break these, these blessings and these curses. And then there are vows and covenants that have been made that bind these blessings and cursings to you. This is the nature of the way occultic rituals work. For those who have no experience with it, it sounds very, I mean, almost foolish but trust me, I've done enough work in this area. This is what goes on in all of these kind of occultic societies and when they're engaging in their rituals. So um, the person renounces blessings and curses, vows and covenants, and then we we uh, have them renounce Jabulon and the, plat- the pledge to the lodge, and then we command Jabulon out. And we also command out um, the spirit of infirmity and the spirit of death. And that's because generally the enforcement of those vows and covenants that the person just had, you know, just said they weren't going to be part of anymore. Generally, the enforcement of those comes through disease and premature death. And so there is a spirit of infirmity that brings sickness, undue sickness. And there's a spirit of death that brings about premature death. And if you look at the lives of people, who have been Freemasons, they often have somewhat mysterious deaths from somewhat mysterious conditions and very often not living to a ripe old age. I mean, everybody's going to die sometime, but sure. But they, they often don't live into their nineties or, you know, into their hundreds. And, and let me just say this because somebody will probably say, well, what about George Washington? There was a, there was literally a change in the Masonic, uh, order and in the rites and rituals of the Freemasons in the very early 1800s. And so it's really the Freemasons since that time, they've become, shall we say, more toxic or more virulent than they even were prior to the early 1800s. I can't remember the year of their, of their reform. From memory, I'm thinking it's 1815, but I may be off by a year or so.
0: Okay, Ken, someone in the comments, this is a question for Ken. uh, It says, uh, can Christians be uh, demonically and or generally cursed? If so, can you provide spiritual reference uh, from the New Testament? Yeah, Yeah. generationally cursed. Yes, sorry, I apologize. I would typically run to, if I had to get an explicit text for demonic oppression for believers, would be second Corinthians 11, four for someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we've proclaimed, or if they receive a different spirit from the one you have received, or if you accept a different gospel than the one you've accepted, you put up with it readily enough. So in in second Corinthians, he opens the book saying, this is to the saints, the hagios the holy ones that he's writing to. And then he tells them, I'm worried about you. Just like Eve put up with demonic doctrines, demonic teachings, false spirits. You seem to be willing to do that very thing. That would be typically one that I run to. Um, and we talked a lot about we don't have to unpack that today um, on the, the word for demon possession and versus demonization in the kind of the, the way the Greek is rendered. You can go watch our playlist on demons uh, if you're interested in that. But let me just ask you when it comes to curses specifically, not just demonic stuff in general, but curses. When I when I read in the uh, the scriptures of the curses that God is placing on generations I often find it's the, it's God placing the curse himself. It's not a demon placing the curse on a person. Um, and then the subsequent question would be, if Christ became a curse for us on the tree, shouldn't we be free of all of these curses from our ancestors? So let me just let you pick up on the curse conversation.
2: Well, you've just thrown out five questions, um, all of which I answer in detail in my series on uh, deliverance, which is available through my website, OrbisMinistries.org. Um, because this is a podcast, I can't possibly dive into every single facet of this. Sure, but sure. I do want to say a couple things about this. Number one, 1 Timothy Timothy one. this is written by the hand of Apostle Paul, the, the Apostle of Grace. Now the Spirit, now he means the Holy Spirit. He doesn't mean just some random spirit. The Holy Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Yeah, uh, I actually like it even better the way the NIV and the King James render it. Um, the The Spirit uh, expressly states that in latter times some will give heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, or things taught by demons. Depends on which of those two other translations you're going to use. Um, it is clear that Paul is speaking to a Christian named Timothy, who was his own spiritual son and disciple, and Timothy has been left in Ephesus to set that church in order, and Paul is addressing the problem of people who are Christians coming under the influence of demons because of listening to false teaching. I mean, there's no other way to interpret this. You can parse and exegete this passage and talk about, you know, which form of the verb it is, but that's clearly what Paul is saying. In addition, in Acts chapter 19, which is the which is the Ephesian revival um, when Paul is evangelizing Ephesus there is a ruling spirit over that city her name is Artemis she's a Greek goddess and it says that these people were getting saved and it says after it says afterward hang on I got to find the, the verse I'm used to it in my other Bible and I'm not uh, I'm not reading from the correct uh book that I usually pull out, but it's in my backpack right now. So um, it turns out that there is a group of men who are the sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva, and they're practicing exorcism, and they see Paul using the name of Jesus, and they say, hmm, we should try that. That looks like a particularly powerful talisman at driving out demons. They try it, and it doesn't really work, and so the evil spirit in the man masters the seven sons of Sceva, Uh, They flee the house naked and bleeding. And it becomes known throughout all of Ephesus. Now I'm reading from 1917. This is the book of Acts, 1917. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. And also many of those who were now believers came. What's that telling you? These are Christians who are coming Having heard about the failed exorcism at the hands of the sons of Sceva, they came and they divulged and confessed their practices. So they're talking about the things that they had formerly done, which apparently maybe they were still doing them, or maybe they had ceased doing them, but they hadn't really gotten free of all of that when they had been converted. And it says a number of those who had practiced magic arts, so occult things, brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. Now, this is more than just a book burning. It is a book burning, but it's more than that. Because anyone who's ministered in, in like deep levels of the occult, I should say ministered to people who were in deep levels of the occult, anyone who has been involved in getting Freemasons out of Freemasonry knows that there will be times when the books need to be burned, the robes need to be burned, the rings need to be melted, The swords need to be melted, or if they can't be melted, you you somehow deform and shatter them, because there is literal spiritual power bound up to these objects. And the reason they're having a book burning is not that they're a bunch of Nazis 2,000 years early. Let me say that again. They are not Nazis. They are doing it because these men and women who had been practicing these things They had books of spells and magic and so forth, and they had to get free of the evil spirits that were still bound to them. This is a deliverance revival that Paul has going on. And again, anyone who's done any level of serious deliverance ministry knows that there are times you need to destroy these objects because that's where the demonic power is coming from that continues to bind the believer. Now, there's one other place I want to cite, and that comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And of course, I just turned to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, so give me just a moment here while I turn. And in writing about um, the the practices of the Corinthians, most of our modern commentators don't go into 1 Corinthians 10 very deeply because they think it's a a purely contextual thing for that time when Paul was ministering among the Corinthians. But Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10, Uh, we'll we'll start in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? Well, clear implication, yes, it is. And the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Clear implication, yes, it is. Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, and we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel, are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Well, he's using an analogous argument, and he's saying, yes, they are. What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? Now, Paul is not saying that there's nothing at all behind an idol. Paul's a rabbi, and he knows Psalm 106, verses 36 and 37, which says all the gods of the nations are demons, and there is power in demons. So Paul's aware of that, but what he's saying is these, these gods are not greater than our God, our Father, who gave up his son Jesus on our behalf. What do I imply, that food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. There it is. He's referencing and echoing Psalm 106. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Bang, right there from the mouth of the apostle of grace, Paul is saying Christians can participate with demons and be demonized. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord in the cup of demons. He's not saying you literally cannot. He's saying you should not. And another way of saying it is you can't do it and get away with it. If you try it, you're going to end up demonized, Christians. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Identical argument now made with regard to the bread, not the wine. And it was wine, not grape juice. And then he says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So Paul is giving, in at least these three uh, passages that I've read, he's whether by his actions in Ephesus or his teaching in 1 Timothy and in 1 Corinthians, He is speaking to the fact that absolutely Christians can come under the influence of demons and be demonized. I have a number of other passages that speak to the demonization of believers in that teaching series on demonization. We just can't go into all of that here. Now, as far as curses go, curses are, in fact, a real thing, and I would just... man it, it's it's such a big argument, but most of the time people want to exclude all of this by saying the Old Testament doesn't matter. And yet, what happened to uh, what happened to the family of Israel, the whole nation of Israel, when Saul committed blood guilt by killing the Gibeonites in his zeal to avenge the the uh what he should should have done, but didn't do? when he was dealing with the first tribe that he was told to get rid of because they had come out against the Jews right. as they were coming out of Egypt. And there was a right. curse on the land for, th- for over three years. There was no rain that would fall, and David sought the Lord, and the Lord said to David, it's because there is blood guilt on the house of Saul, and it's on the whole nation because he, he went after the Gibeonites, when he was actually supposed to be after, I'm wanting to say the Midianites. It wasn't the Midianites. Help me out. Who was it? <laughs> the the Gibeonites. In, uh, the Gibeonites. No, no. The Gibeonites were the ones he should not have killed. Well, and right. I'm looking it up right now so and make myself appear credible to our listeners. The
1: Gibeonite revenge.
2: Yeah, but but the Gibeonites are not the one that that Paul, Saul was told to kill. Saul was told. Oh, that oh would be the, the Amalekites. Amalekites. The Amalekites. Thank you. So well, he was Amalekite, told to kill Agag, so the Agag right? Was, yeah, yeah, that's well. Yeah, Samuel had there's to do Agag it too. What, so the command to Saul was get rid of the Amalekites, and there's a whole backstory behind that that you can trace through Exodus, uh, Deuteronomy, and uh, the first little bit of Joshua, where th- they are told to remember this. And 400 years after it had occurred, now Saul is king, and the Lord says, "Go deal with the Amalekites." And Saul doesn't do it. And apparently, based on the story that we have that deals with this drought that I've just mentioned, this comes out of, um, was it 1 Samuel chapter 2, 2 Samuel 21. Um, When this drought comes, year by year, no rain falls. David seeks the Lord, and the Lord says it's all because of what Saul did. He took on the Gibeonites, which was unjust because there was a covenant made by Joshua with the Gibeonites when they were coming out of Egypt, because Joshua didn't seek the Lord, and the Gibeonites disguised themselves and made it look like they'd come from a long way away. They had moldy bread, they had worn out clothes, and so without inquiring of the Lord, they said, oh, you guys aren't the people of the land here. Okay, we'll make a covenant with you, and then lo and behold, they were, in fact, the locals. And so they make them into water carriers, they're kind of second class citizens, but they don't lay a hand on them, and they are a protected class within Israel all of those years, and then Saul, when he realizes that he had not followed through on the Amalekite vengeance of the Lord, now he turns and he he slays the Gibeonites in lieu of the Amalekites, and this brings a curse down on the whole of Israel. This is clearly laid out in Scripture. You, You might need to read a little more Bible than you're used to to get the whole story. I've got a teaching on this also on my website called Curse Breaking. And I go through every one of the passages in great detail. I unpack the Hebrew, where relevant, etc. But I'm giving you the, whatever this has been, three-minute summary of it uh, right here. So there's an example right. of that sort of thing uh, that, that's right. clearly yeah. laid out in
1: the script. And, and you're right, Ken. We're, we're touching on issues that it would take a lifetime, not a lifetime, but it'd take hours to get through All of these things. Josh and I have also uh, done an episode on generational curses. You guys can go back and look that up too. Um, but, But let's just assume generational curses are a thing. What does it even mean and look like to repent for the sins of a great, great grandfather? Ken, could you share with us practically what that looks like? Maybe even in the context of your own story, because that's exactly what you did.
2: Yeah. Um, and before I tell you what that looks like, let me just give you a couple v- scripture verses people can look at. As it happens, all of these are chapter 9 of their respective books. Go look at Ezra chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9. And if you will look through all of that, um, you will see that over and over again, the respective person praying is confessing the sins of the ancestors, and in the Bible, it says the sins of our fathers, but really, it's the sins of the fathers and the mothers, because sometimes the mothers are the ones who have done it. It's not only the fathers. And there is something that has occurred that lingers, something that gets passed on down. Now, remember, with the Freemasons, which is what this episode is really about, you, if you're listening to this show, and you had a father or a grandfather or great-grandfather who's a Freemason, you were pledged before maybe you were even a twinkle in your father's eye, you were pledged. And so you don't have, you didn't have a say-so in these things, just like you didn't have a say-so in whether you were going to inherit this, the iniquity of Adam and Eve that came to you from long before. Mm-hmm. And so there are some things in life you don't get to choose. You don't get to choose your eye color. You don't get to choose your hair color, although nowadays with the right bottle of chemicals, you might be able to change it. But but, I mean, these things are, are just the way they are. And so people who come out of Masonic lines have been pledged, and when people have these uh, things that have been put on them, there are there are blessings and there are curses. There are blessings of prosperity and political power that come to those who maintain the Masonic line, and there are curses that come upon those who break the Masonic line. And what happens is these spirits, jabulon, infirmity, death, Become the enforcers of those things, and they will bring down all of this calamity upon your head because you are no longer holding true to the Freemasons. As I've often said, Satan is a cruel taskmaster, and he doesn't much care how he ruins your life, he just wants to do it. So, when we talk okay. about generational curses, generational curses come from previous generations. But what I really personally prefer. To the language of generational curse is generational iniquity. Iniquity is something that runs in the bloodline. It's that sin that you inherit from your ancestors. And demons always want to attach to sin. And so, another verse that you'll often hear people cite, although this isn't our main topic today, is they'll say, A curse without cause cannot alight, comes out of the book of Proverbs. Well, that's true. And so people say, Well, I'm under the blood of Christ. No curse can alight on me. And I'm like, Well, If there's generational iniquity that hasn't been cleaned up, that hasn't been confessed, a spirit, an evil spirit might attach to that, and suddenly you're demonized, and you don't even realize why it's there. Hmm. So in my own life, I confess the iniquitous root, the sin of my great-great-grandfather in forming league with Satan through joining the Freemasons and joining the lodge there in New York. I have a friend who has an apartment that when you look out of his window, I can look across several buildings and see that lodge that my grandfather belonged to, great great grandfather. Um, with the, it's in blue and it has that same compass and square with the big G. It's on the side of one of the buildings in Midtown. Um, that's the lodge that my great great grandfather was part of way back in the day, and I confessed, as it were, as though it were my own. That's how Ezra, Nehemiah, and Daniel confessed. They confessed the sin. Of their generation and they confessed the sin of their fathers and so i said lord i want you to forgive me as though i were there even though i wasn't because i was in the loins of my great great grandfather and that concept mm-hmm. is also a very scriptural concept that we are in the loins of those who were our ancestors long before yeah. we were born hebrews 7 yeah. i think
1: it is that that's exactly uh, where it- yeah is it hebrews 7 where he talks about abraham uh before. let's see
0: Levi, was, Levi paid Levi was to Melchizedek through the loins of Abraham.
1: Through the that's loins it. of Abraham, yeah.
2: yeah, that's it. So there's the idea. So it's a scriptural idea. It's just we don't think this way in Western thought, largely because we have a our, our worldview has been stripped of supernatural content.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: But I was my great great grandfather's loin, so I confessed as though it were my sin, and I asked for the blood of Jesus to cover the sins that my great-great-grandfather had committed um, in all that he did with the Freemasons, as well as anything else that might have come about because of his rise to power and success. And in his day, he was a very, very influential man. Obviously, he was at least consorting with the mayor of New York, but it went far beyond that. And then I asked that the curse that came upon those who had broken the Masonic line, which I clearly had done, would be broken. And I asked that the blood of Jesus would be applied to cover it, the word kafar in Hebrew. Uh, we get the word helasmos from that. And so that's the Greek equivalent of it. And that that would all cover it. And then I had some friends with me, I mentioned, who had gone to the historical society with me. And I had them lay hands on me and break the power of the Masonic curse and to command Jabulon, death, and infirmity to leave me. And things started to change in my life in the aftermath of that.
0: So so Ken, we we mentioned this earlier, you know, the the life memory of literate society. So living memory is what we typically call it. When you're in a um uh what do you a non literate society like when when the the society doesn't read and write your your living memory typically is much much longer but once 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 I'm talking funny like Sean Connery once a uh a, a society begins to formalize things in reading and writing their their living memory doesn't go very far i mean it's typically third generation you're lucky if you can get a fourth generation of living memory so if that's the case and someone comes to you, maybe they're adopted, maybe they don't know their grandparents, whatever. And, you know, they're coming to you. They seem to have an infirmity. How can we know that there was some Freemasonry stuff? So what are the kind of the spiritual signs that Freemasonry stuff has happened? And this is a great question from Julie that kind of follows up. She goes, if I break a generational curse associated with Freemasonry because of a a great grandfather, do my children have to do so as well or, well, I have broken it for them. Like, can you break it on behalf of other people? I mean, yeah. <laughs> Josh, you're so
1: good at, at nesting multiple questions together.
0: Well, they're, they're basically the same <laughs> question, right? Like, how do we know? And then who has to break it?
2: Well, that's a really good question, Josh. And we often run into it. So let me uh, let me answer that because it, people, people do want to know this. The way this works is um, if you find out you have Freemasonry in your family and you get free of it, good for you. If you have children, they too, or grandchildren, they too will need to get freed from this spirit jabulon. They will need that. However, if you get freed of it before you sire or bear a child, depending on if you're a man or a woman, that child who is sired or born Following your freedom from this thing will not need that kind of prayer.
0: So if you have clean loins, you're good.
2: Well, yeah. <laughs> you, you
1: clean loins, Sired and loins. You've got some good vocab going on here.
2: You need to check your spouse, and I am assuming this is your spouse, or you shouldn't be having children with them. Um, you need to check your spouse to see if they have Freemasonry in their family because oftentimes without knowing it, two people with Masonic backgrounds come together and now we got to deal with the Jabulon problem on dad's side and mom's side. Just saying. Okay. All right,
1: Ken, um, I, I wanna ask you, uh, earlier you talked about, you, you used the word dramatic to describe some of the encounters you saw as you use the word Jabulon and casting demons out. So I'm gonna pull a Josh here and I'm gonna nest Two questions. Number one, does it really matter if we know the name and use the name? Why can't we just say spirit go in the name of Jesus? Okay, so that's the first question. Second question is, tell us some of those dramatic stories. What are some of the experiences, especially maybe something that has an accompanying healing, like a a visible after effect?
2: All right. Um. So people often ask, "Do you need to know the name of a demon?" And the answer is not always. Um, most of the gospel accounts that show Jesus driving out demons don't show him calling them out by a specific name. Having said that, we do have this one that we know its name was Legion, and if you look at Mark five, the the tense of the Greek verb, I believe it's in verse eight, but you can fact check that. It says. Jesus was saying, the, the construction in Greek is elegen, which means he was saying again and again and again. It's an imperfect verb, which refers to a repetitive action in a past time. So Jesus, effectively, what it's telling us in Greek, does it's not as clear in English, is Jesus was saying to the demon, come out, come out, come out, come out, come out. Now, that may have been because there were so many he was driving them out one at a time. It might have been because it wasn't coming out and it was resisting him. And I know for some of you, you're going to go, wait a minute, no demon can resist Jesus. Not so fast. Remember that at one time he prayed for a blind man and he had to pray a second time because that man only saw men walking around like trees. And then he prayed again and now he was healed. So not all healings, contrary to evangelical mythology, were instantaneous in New Testament times. The majority seem to have been, but not all of them were. And apparently with this one, with the Gadarene demoniac in Mark 5, and there are two parallel accounts, one in Matthew, one in Luke, um, apparently with that man, it was not enough merely to say, evil spirit, come out. And so what does Jesus do? He switches tactics and he says, what is your name? And the spirit says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And then they ensues this discussion about going into the pigs, and Jesus drives Legion out. But it works because he had Legion's name. (coughs) It was understood in the ancient world that if you knew the name of something, you had power over it. This is why, again, in the occult, there are books of spells. You can buy them on Amazon if you want to go dabble in that and they will tell you the names of specific demons.
0: Not advised contact- by this podcast. Sorry, keep going. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I just said, you, you said you can go buy the books if you want to dabble in that. And I said, not advised by this podcast. Just wanted to sneak right. that in there.
2: <laughs> right. Well, I was going to say, I don't recommend that you do this, but you can go buy those books and get the names of many different demons. And this is what they do in the occult. This is what they teach you when you join witches' covens to conjure up spirits by name and send them to do your bidding, whatever that witchcrafty thing is. I mean, I, I don't know how to be more explicit than that. And so in this particular story, one single place in the Bible, Jesus names this spirit by its name, Legion, after asking for it, and he sends those demons into the pigs. And it appears from the way the story goes that Legion is the name of the ruling spirit over a whole cluster of them perhaps many thousand, because 2,000 pigs drown in the sea as a result. And I have seen that exact phenomenon on many, many, many occasions, but not necessarily with Freemasonry. Um, Freemasonry is kind of a unique, niche thing. Now, um, Michael, you asked me for a story or two. Um, Probably the single most dramatic healing I've ever seen that came about from Freemasonry occurred in Dallas, Texas. Uh, This probably would have been six or seven years ago. Um, I went to this church, I preached, and after the service, a father came up to me with his son. And to look at him, as I remember, the boy looked young, and as I remember, he was maybe 11 years old, plus or minus one year. And um, the son had a flesh-eating bacterium that was, that was devouring his digestive tract from his esophagus all the way down to his rectum, and it was devouring his stomach and his intestines. And these bacteria, they, they'd been to all the good hospitals. Nobody knew how to get rid of these bacteria. And the boy was in constant agonizing pain because of the breakdown that was going on within his, his, uh, his digestive system. <clears throat> the father asked me to pray for the boy and as I started to pray, I thought, "Dang, this this looks and sounds like Freemasonry to me." There's no discernible cause. It's bringing him to an early death. He's in excruciating pain, and in fact, the boy was kind of bent like this when he stood, um, because that was you know he'd learned to try to find a, any place that was a little bit less painful, and he'd learned that by bending over just. A few degrees, not not all the way over, not ninety degrees like that. Um, he could moderate somehow some of the pain that he was experiencing. He was scheduled for to go in on Monday morning. This was Sunday, so the next day he was supposed to go into on Monday morning to Baylor uh, University Hospital. They were going to do the last set of tests and checks, and two weeks later. They were going to cut him open and they were going to remove his entire digestive system from his esophagus all the way down to his rectum and put him on a colostomy because they were afraid that these flesh eating bacteria would breach through the walls of his stomach and intestines and would devour ultimately his liver, his kidneys, and would create, you know, peritonitis and he would die that way. So this was their last attempt to spare his life. Now, there's nothing about what I've said that has been exaggerated. This is the facts on the ground. And so as I, as I said, wait a minute, this looks like Freemasonry. Is there Freemasonry in your family? And he said, yes, there is. And he said, in my wife's family, too. And, he, and then he said, do we need prayer? And I said, yeah, we should just do this as a family thing. I said, do you have any other kids? Well, they had three other kids that were there. So now we have six of them. But the main focus is on this, this one kid. And so um, we begin to pray, and I, I'll spare you a lot of the details except to say that there was a lot of very obvious manifestation, and we dealt with the Freemasonry on both sides of the parents, and then we had each of the kids also go through prayer to get free of Freemasonry. Now, obviously, these are young kids. They don't have any children yet, so they, when they come to childbearing age uh, and are you know, ready to have families, they will not need to have their children prayed for unless their spouses bring it into the family. But anyway, we get mom and dad free, and then we get all four of the kids free. And as I say, it was very obvious, very visible manifestation as they were getting free of this Freemasonry. So the next day, I'm back in California because I flew home after the service, and I get a phone call from the dad. And he said, I had to threaten my pastor to get your phone number, but I had to call you. I said, what's going on? He says, we're at Baylor and the doctors have gone in and they've looked in my son's stomach and intestines and there is no sign of the flesh eating bacteria and all of the damage that was there is gone. My son is okay. Wow. And I mean, he was within two weeks of being reduced to a Praise philosophy God, man. For the rest of his life. Praise God. And it was wow. because we got rid of that thing and drove it out about two months later, his dad shows up with his son, just the one son, at a conference I was, where I was speaking in, uh, in Illinois. And he wanted me to pray for his son that this, this canting, because what had happened was his bone plate in, the, in his hips had not formed properly because he'd spent so much time bending over that as it calcified, um, it, it froze in that position and he wanted to get, it, get prayer for his son to be able to stand upright. And so you know, he brought him up on the platform, and I laid hands on his son. And my last memory, I haven't seen them since, although I've spoken to the dad on the phone a few times. My last memory of that boy is of him fully upright running across the stage, now healed of his bone condition that was a subsidiary of the problem caused by the Freemasonry that was eating his son alive from the inside.
0: Man, that's medically wild.
2: documented at Baylor University.
0: Yeah, Ken, these Thank stories are they're super encouraging. And man, I l- we we need to wrap the show up because I think we probably kept you longer than we we had talked about before. So um, I, I do want to give you an opportunity, though. How do people connect with you? Do you want speaking engagements? Like how do they how do they reach out to you and your website if they want to? Uh, you know, book you if they want to like learn from discipleship. I know you mentioned a couple of courses that you have online. Uh, just take a yep. moment to plug all of that, and then we'll just kind of circle back around and close the program.
2: All right. Well, from the top, we have a website, orbisministries.org, dot org. O R B I S. By the way, Josh, you asked about Orbis. We never actually got the answer out. Orbis means unto the world. It's a Latin word that means unto the got world. Got it. When a new pope is uh, is elected and you know he goes to that window in St. Peter's Square, he always raises two fingers in the papal blessing and he says Urbi et Orbi, which is Latin for unto the city and unto the world. So Orbis means unto the world. Um, so Orbis Ministries, but but we're we're Catholic in case you have problems with Catholics. Um orbisministries.org is our website. We have a school for training people to operate in deliverance, healing, prophecy, inner healing, uh, and some other things as well. Uh, and that school is called Orbis School of Ministry. And that has its own dedicated website. You can port through from the main website to get there, but the school's website is orbissm.com. The SM stands for School of Ministry. And therefore there are two S's in that one, O-R-B-I-S-S-M.com. Um, we have products and teachings available if you don't want to go to the school that you can buy on the website, the first website I gave you, Orvis Ministries.org. We also have a downloadable app that you can get for no charge out of Apple, Google Play. Uh, and I think maybe there's one other place we have it posted, and I can't think of what it is right now. But anyway, most people use Apple Store or Google Play, and we have a lot of free teaching there, uh, podcasts conferences that we've done and other things, and we add content all the time. So those are three good ways to connect with me. You can also send an email to my office and be added to our secret Facebook group. It's not a secret society. It's just secret so that Facebook won't uh, censor us when we say things they deem objectionable. If you're in a hidden group, then they tend not to get too riled up. But we've got about, I don't know, maybe 9,000 people in that group. And uh, write to info at orbisministries.org. Um, and Brian will add you to that group and then you can participate in our Facebook group. Okay. Ken, we got people uh, in here Ken. going,
0: we're Ken's Catholic. How long has Ken been Catholic? D- you don't mean Roman Catholic. You mean Catholic in the historic global sense. I think
2: I, I am, I am Catholic in the historic sense. I am not a Roman Catholic. There.
0: Okay. Yeah. So, so for people who are Lower confused PSC with terminology, Catholic. yeah, yeah. He, he's Catholic. Universal
2: church, the
0: universal yes. church. Excellent guys. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of remnant radio. Uh, I, Thanks for staying so long. I know this this episode went a little bit over. We started a little bit late too. So hopefully that that kind of works itself out. Uh, There are links in the description if you've been benefited by this ministry and want to support us. uh, PayPal, a one-time gift, or you can give on Patreon. It's five bucks a month. You get access to extra content. Ken's a great guy. Miller does a lot of traveling, a lot of traveling with him, has done some traveling with him, uh, administered alongside him, doing deliverance and stuff like that. It's one of the reasons we invited Ken on. Uh, He's kind of an, I would say, an expert in this field. Uh, We've seen him... uh, do the deliverance stuff. Uh, I, I'm on I'm on the fence when it comes to some of this doctrinal stuff because I, I was raised in this kind of worldview where it goes, man, if you're a Christian, you can't be demonized. But as I'm sifting through uh, different expressions of charismatic faith, talking about deliverance ministry, I'm finding that there are some pretty compelling arguments. So if you're out there and this sounds really foreign to you, I would encourage you uh, maybe pick up Sam Storm's book on deliverance. Go check out some of uh, Ken's stuff on deliverance. It would be probably very beneficial to you to even hear the other side of the aisle typically we just hear you know well i know there's demons that christians can have because i've cast demons out of christians and it's like not a compelling argument for a lot of people but there is a lot of really academic stuff out there so i just encourage you if you're out there just check out some of that material and see uh uh, if it would be edifying or encouraging to you in this process roundtree do you have anything you want to add to that before we, we sign off today
1: no that's it Thanks, guys, for, uh, for joining us. Make sure you hit that subscribe button. Hit the like button and share this episode with some people. Uh, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Ken. And uh, we'll see you guys tomorrow, Josh.
0: Tomorrow, Michael. Tomorrow.
2: tomorrow. All right. We'll see you tomorrow. Blessings, guys. God bless you guys.